Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which we work hard to keep friendly and inclusive. I hope you have fun and learn something. This is the second part of my conversation with Mary Peasley about hip testing. As I said last time, I highly value Mary's insights about hip testing for a whole bunch of reasons. She's a medical doctor with an additional master's in public health, specializing in preventive medicine. So she has extensive training in understanding screening tests, just like the kinds of tests we do for canine hip health. As for her dog cred, she has been breeding English Shepherds for over 20 years, with a focus on growing and sustaining a healthy breed population. She's been very involved in the breed, earning herding trial championships and serving on the board of directors for the English Shepherd Breed Conservancy, English Shepherd Club, and American Herding Breed Association. Mary has volunteered for the Functional Dog Collaborative for several years. We've had many discussions about health testing and breeding. We've talked a lot recently about hip testing, and I asked her to come onto the podcast to tell us her thoughts. Her thoughts ended up being very both wide-ranging and deep-diving, so I have cut them into two parts, of which this is the second part. If you haven't listened to the first part, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to that first. So we've talked then about maybe how insisting on breeding only dogs under 0.3 is not necessarily the best strategy. Can you talk a little bit more about strategies and sort of what kinds of risks one might accept? Um, like what what kinds of dogs would you really consider based on their pen hip tests are really inappropriate for breeding, for example? Looking at hip dysplasia, you know, we talked initially about how it's not one thing. Um, it's probably a variety of disorders that all get kind of packaged together because they all result in uh, changes in the hip. And the laxity is one factor that contributes to that, but it's not the only factor. Um, starting out with talking about how the laxity as reflected in the DI score, I think it's reasonable for breeders to, to look at that and say, if a dog scores uh, 0.7 or above or looser, that puts that dog into a high risk category as far as developing hip dysplasia. And um, there is, you know, good re research showing that the hip scores of, a, of the parents tend to be quite heritable. Um, you know, it, you can describe that much better than I can, what heritability means and all of the things that you have to know when you understand that term. But bottom line is that if the parents have loose hips, there's more of a chance that the puppies are gonna have loose hips as well. Um, so you want to keep that in mind when you're making decisions for that dog. Um, the 0.7 threshold number, um, if I had a dog, um, that was 0.7 or above, I, I would be very careful about using them in breeding. And I would 
try to be as clear and honest with myself as I possibly could, could in evaluating that dog in other ways, um, besides hips, you know, it's easy to kind of put on rose colored glasses about your own dogs and see all the best things, but, you know, to try to be as objective as you can about what does this dog have to contribute, um, beyond hips that is, that would make taking a risk there justifiable. Is it really worth it? Um, or are there other dogs that could be used that where the risk would be lower? Um, that, so that's one issue as far as looking at the hip scores in those high-risk dogs. Um, second would be making sure if you did decide that there was reason that this dog had something really valuable to contribute, um, to look for dogs that would, as prospective matches, probably be at the other extreme in terms of hip laxity to, you know, whereas for your, if your dog's in that middle range, you might be okay breeding to another dog in that middle range, knowing their puppies are probably going to be in that middle range and that you can, um, and that you can gradually over time be working maybe to nudge it tighter and tighter, but you don't need to feel the need to go out and find the dog with the tightest tips to breed your dog to. If your dog, however, does have a higher degree of laxity, you are going to have a little more urgency on you as a breeder to really be looking for a dog with, with excellent hips to hopefully start pulling that number down and reducing the risk for their puppies. Um, in addition, you might consider, and I don't mean this as a way of offering like uh an easy exit, but it is worth it. If you look at your dog and the hip, you get a hip pen hip rating and it's unexpectedly high. Um, perhaps you were, you know, perhaps you knew the parents and their hips were good and you had a feeling that the family histories on both sides were strong and you get this dog and the, and the hip rating comes back 0.75 or something like that. You might consider repeating that pen hip score. Um, reason being, uh, while the pen hip scores do tend to stay fairly consistent over a dog's life, that isn't to say that the score is going to be identical every time the dog gets tested. And in fact, um, a friend just pointed some correspondence from pen hip out to me, um, where you know they have studied this and they find that the di scores um when when one dog has repeated scores submitted to pen hip that they tend to be within 0.2 of each other and if you pause and think about that 0.2 is quite a big difference if you're looking at a, a if you're looking at the ranges that we're talking yeah. about between zero to one that they will yeah. you know, say, well, most dogs, it's within 0.2, but that can make a significant difference um, in how you think and about it. And if it's most dogs, some of them are going to be more as well, some, right? Yeah, there will be some that will be more. Um, you know, and I, you know, I can immediately spin a bunch of reasons for why this might be the case, you know, and perhaps why, why that possibility that the scores may be somewhat different if you test your dog more than once 
I would imagine that a lot of the studies looking at PenHip, they were they were evaluating the hips in those dogs under very controlled circumstances, um, it, and which isn't necessarily the same thing that you're going to find out in the community. Um, you know, if you take your dog to two different veterinarians, two different clinics, two different setups, your dog, you know, may have changed somewhat in the interval in between. It's not surprising to me at all that you're not going to get exactly the same score. Um, and PenHip also does actually recommend that you check the scores um, for dogs at more than one point so that repeating will improve the accuracy. Now, in reality, most people aren't going to repeat a PenHip score because it's expensive and it requires anesthetizing the dog. And, um, you know, in reality, most people aren't going to be willing to do that. However, if I had a dog that was at the upper end and I was kind of surprised at the score, I think that that is an instance where it might be worth repeating. Um, you know, and I'd say anecdotally, I know of a dog that was OFA good. So that's, you know, that's nice to know. Uh, first pin hip scores on that dog were 0.63 and 0.59, which are normal okay, moderate risk, but they're not great, you know, and that same dog was rechecked a year and a half later, and that time the pen hip scores were 0.45 and 0.37, which, you know, fits into the pen hip oh, yeah. um, 0.2 within that range because, um, you know, one hip improved 0.18, the other hip improved 0.22. So that averages out to 0.2. So yeah, you know, but you feel a bit differently about that when you look at those numbers. Um, you know, and then flash forward 10 years, that same dog had a repeat hip x-ray just to check the hips and uh, in fairly advanced old age, hips still look good. So if I had a dog that was that was on the loose end that I kind of looked at and thought, gee, hmm, I would consider repeating it, um, you know, maybe not right away, but wait a year, recheck, you may find that it was somewhat different um, or not. And if it's if it's not, you know, you will also have the information. Well, are we seeing any changes or and this is something else that I guess we haven't mentioned about PenHip, but. The dogs are heavily anesthetized when they're checking it. They are measuring what they call passive laxity. That is the, the looseness in the hip joint when all of the muscles are fully relaxed. When your dog is up and walking around, obviously the muscles aren't fully relaxed. And it may be that functional laxity, the laxity in the hip when your dog is awake and up and walking around is actually a bit different than that passive laxity. Um, the passive laxity might be greater in some, in, in probably most dogs, it's somewhat greater, but the, the change, just depending on your dog's conformation, their weight, how well muscled they are, um, all of that can help to stabilize the hip so that perhaps functionally the dog is, you know, actually, performing differently than you might predict just based on the pen hip score alone. Um, so the other thing actually that I 
um, this is like, again, getting into the weeds and all the details on pen hip scoring. Um, so the, the scores may be a bit different if you check a second time. And so that's worth knowing. The other thing is that pen hip, um, they will report the score for your dog or when they're doing medians based on the worst hip. So like you mentioned, Jessica, you get a score for the right hip and for the left hip. Uh, so you get two different numbers. Pen hip takes the higher number and uses that to, to rate your dog. So that's where your dog is compared to the breed median based on that higher number. Um, there is the two numbers tend to be correlated with one another, but you do find dogs where they're actually quite different. You know, I can think of just off the top of my head, a dog that had 0.3 in one hip and 0.6 in another hip. I mean, quite a big difference. Those that dog gets, you know, pegged as a 0.6, not a 0.3. You don't get credit for the better hip. They look at the worst hip. Interesting. Um, whether that's really a valid, I mean, I, I guess it's a valid way to look at it. Is that the best way to look at it? Is not at all clear to me. I, the it's conservative. Yeah, it is. It is being as conservative as you can be. Um, whether that, if you wanted to really puzzle through it, does that really make sense? If you're thinking about it, if the dog has a genetic predisposition to laxity, why is it only showing up in one hip and not both hips? Um, but you know, and there is. And I was thinking I was going to go look it up so I'd have the reference to offer. But there was a study that I looked at where they took 195 German Shepherd dogs that were part of a police dog breeding program. And they did all their pen hip testing. And they were looking at the heritability of the hip scores for these dogs. And they looked at it in four different ways. They looked at it for the left hip, for the right hip, for the mean um, the average of the two, and for the worst hip. And what they found um, was that using the, the heritability for the worst hip score, which is what pen hip is using when they're rating your dog, um, that heritability was the worst <laughs> of all of the other measures. And in fact, it wasn't all that high. It was 0 0.15 was the heritability for the worst hip. Um, with a standard error of 0.28. Using the mean, the average of the two improved it a lot, um, up to the heritability was up to 0.5. So that's really good. But just oh, looking different. at, yeah, yeah. if you have a dog where it's getting pegged as having loose hips, but there's a discrepancy where one hip is really tight and the other is fairly loose, I would, you know, I would, put a little asterisk on that too mentally as a breeder. I, you know, I don't have all the research to prove it, but my, my, my feeling would be that there may be something going on there that perhaps may, makes this dog less risky in terms of breeding potential than you might expect just based on that score alone. Yeah, that is interesting. That is interesting. To give some perspective to that from a geneticist, so Mary talked about the heritability. So if you are choosing whether to breed a dog just based on the worst hip score, 
the heritability is 0.15 and that's very low. So that means that the predictability of what the offspring's hips are gonna look like is not great based on that on the worst hip. Um, 0.15 is quite low for heritability. Mm -hmm. um, but if you take, I think you said the mean, mm -hmm. if you take the mean and the heritability then is 0.5, that's actually pretty damn good. Um, yeah. It's not, you know, it's not incredibly high, but for traits that have a lot going on besides genetics, yeah. um, these multifactorial traits where environment weighs in a lot, 0.5 is actually excellent. So just listening, I mean, that's one study in one breed, mm -hmm. but I still think that's a really powerful piece of information that the one approach, just looking at the worst hip was really not a great way to make breeding decisions is what I would take away from that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I think the, the, there are, there are certainly lots of other studies looking at using the pen hip scores and, and to, and calculating the heritability that show better results. I think, um, well, actually two other little tidbits from that one study on where they were looking at the 195 German shepherds, the heritability for the left hip was 0.8, which is really high. <laughs> and the heritability for the huh. right hip, for the right hip was 0.35. And then the mean was 0.5. Wow. So it's, I, you know, I look at that. Interesting. And I, I think, you know, the reason that, that probably using, using the, because most of the time the scores are going to be pretty close to one another. I mean, you know, they'll be like my dog, right. You know, 0.4. Yeah. I wonder if it's driven by close. a few outliers. Yeah. I, but if you have, so in that case, it's, you know, the, it's not going to be much different, um, between the two hips, it, I think just knowing that that's what they saw when they just looked at the worst hip score, that to me, it just says that if I have a dog and you do see them where they come back and their scores are quite different between the two hips, I, I would I would recognize that perhaps averaging is a better way to go um, that to, to get a picture of what this dog might pass on to the next generation. Um, because sure. there may have been other things going on. But you mentioned, yeah, some of the environmental things that can influence hip dysplasia just, just beyond um, laxity. Did you want to get into that a little bit? I think now would be a fantastic time to talk about that. Okay. Yeah. And this I, is... I believe you said that you had something underlined with multiple <laughs> exclamation marks that you wanted to yeah, talk about. Yeah, yeah, when I was thinking about this. And it's just, you know, in big, bold letters, <laughs> underlined triple exclamation point, do not overfeed your dog, especially when they are a puppy, um, you know, during that first eight to nine months of life. Do not overfeed your dog. That's huge. Um, there was an, there was another study that uh, I was looking at in terms of growth rate in dogs because um, the growth rate of dogs is associated with risk for developing hip dysplasia. The faster the growth rate, the higher the risk. So there was a study where they took it was in German shepherds again where they had 222 German shepherds. 
um, they were looking within litters, looking at the, the, the puppies. And they had the, the half of the group, um, they checked, they checked all of the puppies' weights as they were growing, and then they checked them for hip dysplasia when they were grown up. Um, the puppies, the half of the puppies that weighed more than the average weight at two months, so if you took an average for the entire group, the half of the puppies that weighed more than that at two months of age had an incidence of hip dysplasia that was 63% um, within this group of dogs. The half, the 111 puppies that weighed less than the mean at two months had a 37% incidence of hip dysplasia. So it's basically one third of those lighter wow. dogs versus two thirds of the heavier dogs um, went on to develop hip dysplasia in this particular study. Mary wanted me to add some additional information here about retesting a dog whose DI is higher than expected. She notes that if the dog already has hip disease um, in terms of arthritic changes or even pain, then there is no point in rechecking the DI. Her comments here are meant for dogs who have no evidence of osteoarthritis or remodeling of the hips. And how did they how did they measure hip dysplasia? Is this like OFA or yeah, actual looking, arthritis yeah, yeah. or yeah. It was, it was looking just at the, OFA. OFA. Yeah. So, and, yeah. and it yeah. really, you know, apart from the numbers, it's just backing up again. It's just saying, you know, that the rate of growth in puppies appears to be a factor that can greatly influence the expression of whatever tendency it is they have towards developing degenerative changes in the hip. So if ideally... Um, slowing down the rate of growth in puppies. I mean, obviously we're not talking about malnourishment, but keeping the puppies um, from growing too fast during that first eight to nine months of life um, appears to be really important in influencing their and risk. And can you say a little bit more about how someone would assess whether their puppy is growing too fast or not? Like, what do we mean by too fast? How do we know how much to feed them? Those yeah. are hard questions. Yeah, I mean, so how do you, I mean, it's going to depend on your breed to some extent. So, you know, I have mm -hmm. to be a little bit careful. All of my experience. And the size, yeah. Yeah, all of my experience is with my dogs who are medium-sized dogs. Um, so, you know, that being said, I can tell you the things that I do that that work well and the things that I I watch. And so what I want to see overall throughout puppyhood with my dogs is I want to see slow, steady gains um, in in weight. So for them, that that has translated into like around a pound a week of of gain for my dogs, you know, for other breeds, it's going to be different. Um, but I want to see a slow, steady increase in size, um, paired with, you know, a dog that I, I see showing, you know, good energy, good coat, you know, clearly getting good nutrition, um, and gaining slowly. They do often look to other people they look and say okay that's that's 
a skinny pup or your pup is pup could gain weight. Um, and so I'm going to back up just a second and, and say, you know, my clinical training background was in pediatrics and skinny kids are this what you expect and what kind of what you want to see. They don't kids don't need a lot of padding. <laughs> and I think the same is true with our dogs. So in terms of what I'm looking for, just, you know, in the big picture is dogs who have a slow, steady weight gain, who have good energy, good coat. Um, that's the picture I'm looking for. The amount of food to get there is obviously going to be tied to the size dogs that you are are feeding and also their lifestyle um the environment that they live in and the conditions that they're exposed to so how much activity they're getting if they're out in really cold weather you know so their their body has to work harder to maintain you know normal body temperature there's going to yeah. be a lot of variables that go into how much to feed your dog but um you know for for my dogs I just know that the amount that I feed my dogs is um, often substantially less than, let's say, what the manufacturer recommends on the dog food packaging, and um, that's useful. Often less than what um, I see other people feeding their dogs. Just on a purely practical level, I think it is so easy to overfeed your dog. Um, because yeah. if you have a puppy that you are consciously, you know, restricting calories so that they have that nice, slow, steady gain, I don't want to don't want to see them plateauing and not grow, not growing. I just want it to be growing slowly. But if you have a puppy in those circumstances, I can pretty much guarantee they will always tell you that they're hungry and they will always, you know, gobble up their food really quickly if it's just put out in a bowl, you know, as opposed to presenting it in a way that makes them work a little harder to get it. Um, so they eat fast, yeah, you know, they're it, always yeah. hungry. And it's, it's very easy to feel like, oh, you know, I mean, they just finished that off in, you know, a minute, surely they need more. <laughs> and your dog will obviously say, yes, thank you, I do. And the reality is that they don't really need more. I think dogs are sort of programmed to eat food that is available. Um, I mean, because... so are humans, to be fair. <laughs> and they will happily eat it. If you have, and I would put it, I would actually go so far as to say, if you have food out all the time for your dogs and they're not eating it, you're feeding them too much. Um, because, yeah. you know, I, I realize there are some dogs that are programmed differently perhaps than my dogs and they're more picky eaters or whatnot. But that's like a whole nother issue. I think a normal healthy dog um, will overeat given the choice. And so, you know, it's incumbent on us to be mindful of just keeping track of how quickly they're gaining and having in, having in mind, you know, what is their final adult weight going to be and how quickly are they getting there and to sort of have a slow, steady track to that final adult weight, um, not <laughs> reaching it at six, six months. Um, and 
probably the the bigger the dog, the more you want to be thinking, okay, they're going to get that final stage a little later, that final size a little later. Yeah. Um, not just let them really pile on the size early because um, the growth rate in a dog is directly related to their calorie intake. If you feed them more, they will grow faster. Um, they and if you feed them less, they will grow slower. Feeding them less does not influence their final adult size, assuming you're not, you know, starving the dog to the point of malnutrition. But if you're feeding them less and they're growing slowly, they will still reach the same final adult size. They will just get there later um, than dogs that are fed more and grow faster. Um, so, and it's, and it's specifically, and you know, the, the, the feces, the growth plate and the blown bones will stay open longer in a dog that you are, that is growing more slowly. They have more opportunity to be developing muscles that will support that skeleton as they grow, as opposed to feeding them a lot. Their skeleton grows really fast. The growth plates closed and you have you know, big, heavy dog that hasn't really got everything tied together and supported real well yet. So I don't know if that answered your question about yeah. how you know, but yeah, I think it does. Having, it does. Having a and I don't, yeah. I don't know if you can answer this question, but um, when you talk about slow, steady growth and you talk about about a pound a week, a pound a week for dogs of that medium size can we translate that into percentages maybe to help people out a little bit like 10%? That seems like a lot. 10% a week seems like mm -hmm. a lot. Do you have a, a feel I, for what? Yeah. You know, I haven't, I have, I actually have not thought about it in those terms. I mean, I have, okay. I mean, I have a really simple um, way that I handle my own dogs, um, which, you know, people, some people, may or may not agree with <laughs> but you know when i when i'm starting out like with my little puppies you know a puppy should not be eating more than an adult <laughs> and i know how much my adult dogs eat and it's you know it's not <laughs> sure. it's, it's not that much i mean if we're talking you know like a cup and a half of kibble <laughs> a day um it seems like very little but in fact they do just fine and in our cases i'm sure it's because they also manage to scavenge you know the the last two bites of my sandwich and such but anyway I, I i just have a simple sort of approach with my with my puppies and sort of gradually um increasing the amount they feed and keeping in mind how much the adults are eating up until you get to that late adolescent phase where yeah they may need a little more at that point than your you know settled middle-aged dog but the little babies, you know, the 10 pound puppy does not need to be eating more than the 45 pound adult. But, but that's, that's just my, you know, my personal way I do. Yeah, with it. no, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. So that's great information. What, what else is on your list of environmental factors? Um, besides, besides nutrition, which is, which is really the big thing. And, and it, it's most, I think the most critical period where you can influence things is when they're growing. Um, you can really help set them up for a good, long, healthy 
life when they're in that growth stage. However, their weight does stay important beyond puppyhood. And so, I mean, it is, it is easy to sort of um, maybe bump up their food when they're in adolescence and they're really active and running a lot and forget that, you know, depending on your breed, it will come at different ages from my dogs. It's usually right around age three, they shift from being, you know, adolescent, young adult to more settled into mature adulthood. And at that, you can dial back the food and it's, it's easy to forget. I think that, you know, they might go over and then you pull back. Um, after that, it's not just steadily increasing the amount that they eat as they grow to, um, adulthood. So keeping them lean as adults is, is the second piece feeding wise. Yeah, Beyond and, that, and let me oh. interject. Let me interject mm-hmm. there about how to assess a dog, a dog's leanness as an adult, because a lot of people don't recognize this. And I think in our society, we overfeed dogs so much that yes. what looks normal to us is actually pretty overweight. So, yeah. I mean, certainly asking your veterinarian for help is great, um, but the general rule of thumb is when you run your hand sort of gently along your dog's ribs, not pressing down too hard, um, but just run your hand gently along your dog's ribs, you should be able to feel the ribs. It shouldn't feel super deep and super, you know, they should not be super prominent, but you should be able to feel them without digging in. Right. Right. So everybody go try that with their dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Mary, go on. (laughs) No, and it, no, and and it's one of those things that, yeah, you do have to sort of stay on top of it because, you know, you do, dogs go through different stages in their life and you may, you need to be always mindful of, you know, some, some periods they may be super active and eating more. You need to remember to dial it back when it gets to be December and you're spending a lot more time inside maybe and not out as much and just, you know, as they age, pay attention to these things. Yeah. Um, and different dogs are different. My my English Shepherd is just skinny. He just is. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe mm-hmm. it's because partly because he's intact. But mm-hmm. um, I feel his ribs extremely easily. And no matter how much I feed him, that's mm-hmm. just how he is. Versus yeah. I have my mutt Jenny, who like she's very sensitive to how much I feed her. And I'm constantly like, oh, you just got fat again. And I no, I dial it back and I'm like, oh, I can really feel your ribs again. And I increase it again. So she's just, and so yeah. you know, different dogs are different. Some of them are just going to be how they're going to be. And some of them are super sensitive to it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, my dogs tend to be very, what we call easy keepers. They gain weight really easily. Um, so I'm always having to stay on top of their intake and uh, but I have had a few dogs over the years where they weren't like that at all. They could eat quite a lot and stay lean. So absolutely, every dog is going to be a little bit different. Um, other things that, you know, you can do as far as, as reducing risk for developing hip dysplasia. The, the food intake is one, one piece of it. Also, obviously, activity, exercise is the other piece of maintaining a, a lean, fit um condition that that's really helpful it's and as a breeder it's one of those things you can kind of be paying attention to as well um we could you know we 
talked a little bit about um, hip dysplasia in dogs overall and these thresholds for looking at risk using pen hip scores and such. There obviously there's differences from breed to breed in the prevalence of hip dysplasia and in, you know, the distribution of, of hip scores and laxity and such. Um, laxity isn't the only thing that varies breed to breed. And there are other factors besides laxity that depending on your breed may um, increase the dog's risk for having um, hip dysplasia. Things that contribute to higher risk include um, body size, mass, and their type and by type, and you know, their, the conformation of the dog, um, sort of how they're put together. Um, the, there's, there's actually quite a high prevalence of hip dysplasia in dogs that are at the extremes of the size range. So it isn't just that bigger is worse. Um, I think dogs that are large or giant in size, they carry around more mass. And so they do tend to put more wear on their joints as they age, just because of the extra weight. So if they have loose, looseness in their hips, if their muscling is kind of soft, if they tend to carry a, a fair amount of fat um, or dogs that have, they you know, clinically refer to it as like acromegalic characteristics. That's like the um, high growth hormone sort of heavy features like a St. Bernard, that those breeds tend to have higher risk. And it's, it's not simply because they have loose hips. It's also because of the extra mass and the way their muscles are um just you know the whole body size and type um contributes to risk and then you know dogs on the other extreme some of the smaller dogs also tend to have fairly high incidence of hip dysplasia um so well, when we talk about the smaller dogs sometimes we're also including i think things like pugs mm -hmm. and french bulldogs and, and a lot of the the you know the small, right. And, and it's, yeah. you know, we look at them and we think of them as small, but the first time I saw an x-ray, a radiograph of, I want to say it was a bulldog. I couldn't believe that that was, this dog was like, I looked at it and thought the dog was horribly misfigured. And I actually took it. So I was a, I was a veterinary mm -hmm. student and I took it to the veterinarian I was working with. And I said, look at how these the leg bones are curved and everything looks weird to me and they said no that's you know bulldogs yeah. typically look like that yeah um, but i think there's it's important not to normalize that because there's yeah. some way in which we're like well that's just a bulldog but that doesn't mean that it doesn't um weigh in to this dog's risk of developing joint disease as it ages right right yeah so in terms of, I mean, I, you know, I have just, just sort of not tiptoe around this, but I just feel like, oh, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this. If they, you know, they can as, yell at me, everybody <laughs> yell at me, not at Mary. As breeders, what we want to do is set up our puppies and future generations for long, healthy lives. I think, you know, looking at hip laxity is one thing that that we can keep in mind. 
but also just looking at the overall size and structure of the dogs we're breeding and understand that those things are heritable to some extent and that those things are going to influence the risk that that dog faces for having for having joint problems so if you're breeding dogs that are extreme in size um and you know you might want to think about maybe moderating it a little bit if you're if you're also seeing that there are joint problems you know if there's not i mean i will say so it's not like you you want to be careful with generalizations it's not oh big dogs have hip problems because there are large breeds that don't have hip problems you know some there are some of the working like livestock guardian breeds they're actually quite large and they also actually tend to be structurally pretty sound for life but but those dogs you can look big picture or you know look at the whole dog again and go but this is a dog that was being getting some pretty stringent performance testing functional testing um over the course of its life that tend to be well muscled um they tend to have you know athletic um an athletic build and that that makes a difference so just keeping in mind that it's the whole picture of the dog that we're looking at that influences their risk for having joint problems. I think we realize that there are factors besides just looking at hip x-rays that you can be looking at and be thinking about when you make your choices. The dog that's going to be fit and healthiest over the longest term is going to be the dog that's, you know, got, you know, nice balanced proportions, good, strong muscles that is athletic. Um, you know, you can look at those things in the parents, look for those things in the parents, and that will set you up for more success. Um, so besides, you know, those are the management things that exercise wise. So I, I'm going to just say for myself, I, you know, there are the charts out there for how much exercise you should be allowing your puppy to have. And there's, you know, the stuff about, um, that going up and down stairs is associated with hip dysplasia and i you know i can't really speak to the research i can just tell you from my personal experience i live with stairs my dogs live with stairs we they it's just part of our environment so that's not something that's optional um i also you know in terms of activities for puppies i mean you you want to use common sense and, and for adult dogs as well. You want to use common sense. Um, you don't want your dog vaulting off of retaining walls when they're a puppy. Um, you, you know, you don't really want them sliding around at high speeds um, on slippery floors. I mean, there's, there's certain common sense things you do, but um, in terms of exercise and activity in, puppies um paying attention to the surfaces the dog is is um, running around on free play so that they are you know that they have reasonable traction um and that they're not too hard it's not just all concrete and um giving them opportunities to move and run and you know develop their coordination 
um, as as little as little babies, you know, and all growing up that that learning how to use their body and being free to do so is a really important part of them developing a good neuromuscular control of their body that in turn, in my opinion, is going to influence how they hold up over the long term. So all of that is to say that I don't really pay too much attention to the instructions about how much exercise a puppy is supposed to have. I tend to give them a fair amount of choice and um, and lots of opportunity to move and explore um, if they choose to. And that, that seems to work really well with puppies. And that, um, you know, with adult dogs, just making sure that they are having the opportunity to get out and to move off leash and to exercise and run um, is important. So, yeah. For their for their mental well being as well, yeah. And I also want to weigh in here, by the way, as we're talking about orthopedic health, mm-hmm. that I think for a lot of people, and I, I sympathize with this, it can be really hard to find a way to get your dog to a safe place to go yeah. out there off leash, yeah, and um and really move their body comfortably. It's super important, but it's hard. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us. Um, turn to playing ball in safe enclosed areas. Yeah. And I want to upfront say that I do use fetch as a stopgap measure for my border collie when he needs to run and I can't get him anything else, but I try to limit it. Mm-hmm. And particularly with a young dog, right? That, that yeah. short and then the fast stop is um, something I would just not overuse. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and I'm totally sympathetic to the difficulties in finding places where your dogs can get out and yeah. just have space to move, especially, you know, the bigger the dog, the bigger the space you need. And it can be hard. I, I mean, mean I, Lord, I picked my house that yeah. we bought this house because it was right on property that right next to property where we could do that with our dogs. And not everyone has that luxury. Right. I, I do think that that there is that there is a fair amount that you can do in um, smaller spaces. It's not going to be you know like the the big cardiovascular workout, but just to help your dog build their coordination, especially young dogs, just to have the body awareness and their proprioception. That um, I. I think it's a blast to do this with puppies. Like when I have a litter of puppies, all the stuff that they can do, learning how to use their body, I do sort of have to believe that that translates into, like I said, just having better body control um, as as they're growing that is going to be all to the good. You know, there's not going to be a study out there that shows it, but things that you can do to help your, your dog develop their coordination. And it doesn't take big spaces, you know, it's just getting them used to moving on un- uneven surfaces, unsteady surfaces, balancing themselves, um, just learning how to, to bend and move. All of that is going to be helpful. For sure. So there's another there's another environmental influence that people talk about a lot. Do you have opinions on timing of spay neuter in terms of orthopedic disease? Um, yeah, 
It's I, okay I, if you don't. <laughs> I, I do. And I think, I mean, as I, and I think, I mean, I have opinions. I think there is, um, you know, I, I could go back and dig them out. I think there's pretty good research to suggest that the, the, the early spay neuter, and I'm going to say pediatric, like in the first six months is, um, unhelpful for, um, in, in the sense that it will increase the risk that a dog will go on to develop orthopedic problems later in life. And, um, so that very early spay neuter is likely to be unhelpful. Um, I think intuitively you, I, I sort of have to believe that giving dogs the benefit of sort of normal triggers during triggers for growth and development during those first years where their bones are growing and and they're um, achieving their sort of adult confirmation that leaving their system intact during that stage is likely to be helpful they're going to end up with a skeleton that reflects you know sort of what they were genetically programmed for as opposed to um, the issue there being, I guess, to be clear, when you spay or neuter a dog um, prior to puberty, you are going to be removing the normal hormonal signals that come with puberty that tell the dog's bones to stop growing. Um, that normally, that, that anyway, that, that's what will happen. So if you spay or neuter a dog when they're a young puppy and they're still in that growth stage, they will grow longer. Their long bones will be longer in the end than they would have been if you had waited until after the dog had gone through puberty, those growth plates in the pup in their bones um, had closed. Um, and it's, so they had stopped, their skeleton had stopped growing. If you, if you let them go through that, that, stage of development normally um, before spaying neutering, I think you will be ahead of the game in terms of risk. And I think that's basically what research so far indicates. It's not, I mean, hip dysplasia being a, a complicated disorder um, means that, you know, it's never just one thing that's going to result in a dog having a problem or not having a problem. But if we're talking tipping the scales in favor of um, reducing risk, then I would wait until the dog had um, stopped growing. So for most dogs, you know, it depends on the, the size of the breed, you know, at what age they reach that, you know, skeleton is done growing. Um, if it's a giant breed, it might be a little bit later, you know, maybe more towards 15, 18 months. And you probably know this better than I do. A very small breed might get there earlier. But just ballparking, if you can wait until about a year, you they've probably gotten, you know, most of majority of dogs will be pretty well set in terms of their skeletal development, which so that's good. Um, the other factor when you spay and neuter, you do remove hormones, um, is particularly testosterone androgens that can help support muscle development. So there, there, your dog, you may have to work a little harder to maintain good muscle development in a dog after 
they've been spayed or neutered. I mean, this probably relates to the, uh, you know, the popular preconception or, or belief that, you know, dogs tend to get fat after you've spayed or neutered them. And some of that is probably just because, you know, they're getting older and they're, you know, less naturally inclined to just go tear around for hours on end because of age and, and you haven't cut back on their food. A lot of it is, you know, management, normal life changes, but some part of it may also be related to the hormone balance so that um, if you prior to, I mean, if you leave your dog intact, they may have an easier time maintaining a good lean body mass, maintaining their their muscle mass than afterwards. So, you know, I guess I would say it's, it's probably something that you can, that spaying or neutering may make you have to work a little bit harder to keep your dog in good shape, but it's certainly it's possible, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah, totally. And I, I think that's a great way of putting it. So I want to just talk uh, for a second about the shelter perspective, because I know a lot of people listen to statements like this about how it really mm-hmm. probably is yeah. helpful to wait a bit longer. And they look at their, our shelters spaying and neutering puppies at six mm-hmm. or eight weeks of, or eight weeks really of age. Um, and just and and I did a shelter medicine internship and I neutered, spayed and neutered a lot of puppies at that age. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, there are no simple answers. And yeah. if, you know, if you're a shelter and you're really dealing with overpopulation problem and not knowing that the owner that you send that puppy out with will really be up for bringing the animal back at a year to be yeah. spayed or neutered. I think it is 100% reasonable to do that early spay neuter. And yeah. for those who are listening to this, um, with this, and, and this is a breeder podcast, right? So we're yeah. we're talking to people who are talking about breeding their dogs. But if you are, um, you know, acquiring a puppy, you're thinking about doing it from a shelter and it comes to you spayed or neutered early, I just want to point out that what Mary just said was it's not the biggest factor um, but maybe then you you really emphasize um, all those other things that we talked about, which are more important, which are, um, let's see, how much you feed the dog when it's young, how much you feed the dog when it's old, how much the dog exercises, what kind of exercise it gets. Those are the really big heavy hitters envi- environmentally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think we may be hitting the end. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? I guess the only other thing that that comes to mind that um, is worth, maybe worth discussing a little bit is, you know, we started out talking about um, hips as an example of a gray area um, where it gets a little bit complicated um, because you know, we all like to have black and white answers to things, but the reality is that very often it's it's not black and white, it's complicated. Um, and that doesn't mean that there aren't some basic guidelines that you can use to help you sort of sort through things. So, I mean, we talked about in terms of testing, you know, well, I guess I'm going to back up. And just in in terms of you know selecting as a breeder, 
doing, what can we do to sort of minimize hip dysplasia in our dogs? I mean, basic things we can do when we're evaluating dogs as breeding stock is to look as the dog comfortable and able to move freely. And if you can't say that, you shouldn't be breeding the dog. Um, I think my opinion. Um, but you need to recognize there's going to be a number of dogs where you say, yes, this dog is perfectly comfortable and able to move freely. And then you go on to the next things and you find it still, it's a little bit muddy about your answer. Um, so you look at the dog, x-ray their hips, because you really do need to, you know, look under the hood if you're if you're going to be thinking about breeding the dog you need to know what you're working with and the only way you can really do that um accurately is by x-raying their hips you can't just tell by looking um because there will be a lot of dogs who have hip dysplasia or have arthritis in their hips that you don't see obvious signs and you want to know if that's there because that's going to influence the decisions you make down the road um the other things you can do in terms of management, you know, growing the puppy slow, keeping them lean and fit. Um, things you can do um, in selection is to be looking for dogs that are moderate and balanced and athletic um, in their build so that they don't have other genetic things besides laxity that might be contributing to their hips. Um, then when you x-ray the hips, keeping in mind with OFA, older is better. So the longer you can wait, um, well, the later in life that you see a uh, passing OFA, the more meaning that that result carries for you. And then with pen hip, knowing that you want to be a little bit cautious. Um, if the dog is over that 0.7 threshold, you want to really be considering what it has to contribute, maybe rechecking, really looking seriously at only breeding to a dog with really excellent hips if you use them. Um, so we talked about all of those things. I think that the um, the reason that this is this gets gray is because hip dysplasia is complex. It's not just one thing. It's not just one gene. Um, we have you know all of these factors converging that are interacting with each other towards the outcome. It's not one thing you can point to that's at fault. Um, but it's also complicated because dogs are complex and the hips are just going to be one piece of the package when you're trying to make a decision. And um, the package is, I mean, selecting dogs to breeding, it's all or none. You either take the whole dog or, or you don't use the dog. You can't like take the hips from this dog and the temperament from that dog and the drive from another dog and the health history from a, you have to take the whole dog or not at all. So it gets complicated when you're balancing everything together. But then the last thing I guess that we have sort of only touched on a little bit is just that it's also complicated and gray because when you're a breeder, you're looking at your individual dog, but hopefully you're also keeping in mind the context in which you're breeding and in the population that you're working with and recognizing that we, when we're talking about hips, we would like to really narrow things down and only breed dogs with the very best hips. 
But we have to also keep in mind that if that narrows down the population we're working with so that it's only like a, a tiny fraction of the of the gene pool for a breed or or even just dogs in general, you are going to be putting a really stringent filter on and that will affect the diversity of your breeding population greatly and because this is one of the things that um, is becoming more and more appreciated on a population level genetic diversity is really important for overall health so it's this balancing act where you're trying to to narrow down the amount of diversity related to hips but not lose all the genetic diversity within the breed that helps keep the breed healthy and keep you from running into a situation where you've got all the dogs really closely related to each other and and genetically extremely similar and then you start start piling up the problems that relate to inbreeding so just that on the one hand you want to be selective on the other hand you know you also have to maintain diversity it's not a just you know diversity isn't a justification for perpetuating problems but you just have to be really be thinking, I think, big picture and long term when you want to make changes um, that you have a goal where you're going, but you're not necessarily going to get there in one generation. Um, and big picture, you're looking at the whole dog, not just at a hip x-ray, not just at a pen hip score, um, because that's not the whole picture. Yeah, I think that's a great summary that a lot of people are very tempted to really breed by the numbers and they it's I mean I sympathize with that right like yeah. I'd like to have these solid rules yeah. saying if the dog's over 0.3 don't breed it yeah and then no one can yell at you yeah <laughs> you can feel safe right but it's not reality right well and it just requires that you have I mean you have a, you're putting a very tight filter on your selection and i'm sure you thought the same thing when you were going through vet school when i was going through med school you know you reach a certain point when you're in your pathology classes and you are looking at how complicated the body system is how many ways things can go wrong i mean you can i mean it's it's a miracle that things go well as often as they do because there are so many so many ways so many ways that dogs can develop problems you know behaviorally or medically that you can never just let everything i mean you have to be very careful about letting everything turn on one score because there there are many other things that could come back and bite you i mean we all know uh, you're again you're the geneticist but we all know that every individual carries some defective genes they've got some deleterious mutations in their genome that's just the way yep. it is that's it, you know things don't replicate yep. perfectly every every animal has and we can't test for all of them yeah we we can't test for them yeah. even if we could we can't select you know specifically well i'll just 
get, you know, if everybody has a defect and you are using zero defects as your criteria, you will have no dogs to work with. Right. Uh, but right. what you, I mean, what you want to do is just be, you know, you do need, you have criteria. You're not going to, nobody wants a dog that's in pain or that is disabled. I mean, that that's clear cut, but we just have to be a little bit careful, um, you know, in how we work towards that, that we don't set such a high bar and say, oh, we're only going to breed excellent hips that you forget. Well, okay, there's, there's seizures, there's autoimmune problems, there's diabetes, there's patellas, there's elbows, there's shoulders, there's so many things, there's cancer. There are so many different, you know, types of problems that can um, come up that what we need to do is we have to have, you know, enough genetic diversity within our population that there is there are dogs with normal copies of all of these genes uh, you know so that we're not just pivoting everything on one normal here and forgetting about everything else so it's 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 certainly you know i mean it, the the bottom line is never that complicated you know it's just okay you know if you you keep your, you know, know what you're working with, you know, you know that this is because it's a complicated problem in a way that's good. It means there's lots of levers that we can pull that can influence the outcome. It's not just about their hip score. There's all these other things that we can do and that's great. Um, so I, I think the hip scores are important, but we just hold them gently and have everything else, um, you know, keep everything else in the picture too. And it, you know, for what it's worth, you know, I started out with my dog with okay hips and five generations later, we're doing fine. I mean, actually, it's it's kind of funny. My my fifth generation now, her hip scores are, her sit scores are virtually identical to my original dogs are in the fours. Um, sure. OFA good, super athletic. All the dogs in between have had long, healthy lives, nice sound hips. It It's not that hard at least in my read i found it's not that hard um, depending on your your options yeah 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 to to just to to you know to be able to to manage the problem and to prevent the expression of hip dysplasia it doesn't you don't have to go to the extreme um extreme conservative in your selection to be able to have dogs that can live long healthy lives beautifully said. Well, thank you so much for being on and sharing all of these thoughts. I, I think this is going to be really helpful for a lot of people, or at least it'll start <laughs> a lot of people thinking. <laughs> yeah, um, I will. I hope so. It's, it's, it was a pleasure to talk to you. And um, yeah, I hope I didn't go walk into too many traps or <laughs> it's a tough thing about taking. Well, we'll the find out, but I, tough thing about taking a middle ground on any topic is that people on either side are upset yes so but you know there it is <laughs> just try to gather no. all the information and don't panic over any of it and do the best you can perfect thank you so much hey friends some of you have asked how to support the podcast so we have set up a patreon page for it 
For a small monthly pledge, you help us pay for producing this podcast, and in exchange, you get a chance to suggest questions for podcast guests, and you get early access to podcast episodes. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash functional breeding. You can also help promote the podcast through subscribing to it through the podcast app of your choice and by leaving favorable reviews. If you're interested in supporting the Functional Dog Collaborative more generally, or finding ways to get involved, go to the functionalbreeding.org website and click the support link. Thanks to everyone who has helped out. We could not do this without you. Thanks so much for listening. The Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Attila Merton. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. To learn more about the FDC, check out the functionalbreeding.org website. Enjoy your dogs. Yeah.